You better be listening to Slizoids or I must break you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we are putting some respect on Elizabeth Berkeley's name. You hear that? So join the sleaze. <laughs> We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out in two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing. We are in our fifth year of bonus episodes, so there is uh, so many, uh, over 100, maybe even like 110, plus our bonus transmission series, which we where we talk about new release genre films, which by the time you guys are listening to this, there's probably going to be two coming out in June because we're watching so many movies and so many crazy things coming out, including (laughs) like Top Gun and Northman and a new Cronenberg film. So definitely, uh, if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast. We recommend doing that. Um, and speaking of which, we did have a bunch of people make the jump this week. So let's give them their shout outs here. We had um, uh, Jonathan. We had CJ Barbato. We had Kyle Papayano. Oh, God. Sorry, man. Uh, Catherine <laughs> K. Uh, we had Altoid make the jump from $5 a month to $10 a month. Nice. Uh, he joins us for the monthly virtual screening we do um, at the end of each month on the last Thursday of the month. And, you know, a lot of people have been signing up. So if you have any interest in the virtual screenings, they've been popping off a little bit lately. We just did uh, Jackie Chan. So, mm-hmm. you know check it out uh we also had moderately cold sign up uh we had stefan make the jump from uh doing five dollars a month for the year to doing ten dollars a month for the year he paid for an entire year up front so thanks so much to you stefan he'll also be joining us for the virtual screenings we had uh punches uh 2104 uh and austin sherode so thanks so much to all of you folks for signing up hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes yeah thank you and uh, the other plug for the week, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Spotify listeners. It used to be Apple Podcasts, but now both of you, uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and I see the stats, I know that you are. I'm looking at you right now. Scroll down to the bottom and give us a good old rating and review over on both of those platforms. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug for the week, as always, is merch if you like the poster art that based out of horror uh, based out of toronto horror artist trevor henderson did for the show you can get that put on basically anything you can think of uh you can just get a poster you can get a hoodie you can get a shirt you can get a pen someone's bought a pillow Pillow. someone's bought a notebook (laughs) yeah they are you can if you like it you can get it pretty much put on anything and the link to that is in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com whoo 
that being said, that is the intro. Welcome back to another yes. week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks uh, would have heard from us, and uh, we would have been going Tony Scott mode Oh yeah. in celebration of a brand new Top Gun film hitting theaters. We had a special guest, JT White, from the Extended Clip podcast on to talk, one, Top Gun, but also Days of Thunder from mm-hmm. 1990. So we talked Jerry Bruckheimer, Don Simpson, Tom Cruise and Tony Scott collaborating on two different films that almost have the same basic uh, character trajectory of them. Yeah. Um, but are, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, <laughs> very macho melodrama. And Tony just directs <laughs> the absolute shit out of both of them. And Days of Thunder, actually, the script by Robert Town is quite a bit stronger than Top Gun. So if anyone who has, yeah. if anyone has any issues with the characterizations in Top Gun, which I would not begrudge anyone, Days of Thunder <laughs> might be worth checking out. Uh, but yeah, we had a lot of fun breaking those down with JT and giving Tony Scott the love that he deserves. Absolutely. And then um, last week over on the bonus feed was your patron voted episode, uh, which I'm sure most of you know by now, but our patrons once every two months, they get to vote on a double feature. They get to select the two films and then vote the top one uh, that we have to cover no matter what. And you guys were very nice to us last week. We talked Dragon Inn from 1967, as well as A Touch of Zen from 1971. We went King Who mode and uh, we, we, we were enlightened. Yeah, um, we loved we, them. Yeah, and, and we also wrote down lots of notes on the strategic uh, details on how to uh, resist imperial eunuchs, which is very important <laughs> information right. to have. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't heard that episode, patreon.com slash podcast. That was last week's bonus episode. Uh, but moving on to this week, moving away from uh, Taiwan and heading on over to Japan, we have a very special guest uh, joining us, a returning guest. She is the uh, web editor over at Harper's and also the host of the podcast over there and the and a film critic whose writing has appeared in so many places, the New York Times, Criterion, Sight and Sound, Reverse Shot, Film Comment, so many places. She is an incredible writer, one of my favorite critics working. I'm glad to have her back. That is uh, Violet Luca. Violet, how you doing? Oh, oh. I'm good. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Thanks yeah. for coming back. Last time we had yeah. you on, we had a we had a, a very interesting pairing of the other side of the underneath and anguish where we talked yes. like I, we, we, we went a little crazy. <laughs> we talked uh, cinematic <laughs> depictions of uh, of madness and kind of metatextual violence that kind of goes beyond the screen a little bit. And it was it was a very interesting conversation. And I, you know, I, after we did it, we were like, well, she's got to come back. You know, we had, <laughs> I, 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 I hadn't I hadn't even heard of um, uh, the other side of underneath. So I was mm-hmm. like, this is, you know, we and, and same today. I actually hadn't heard of the second film that we're doing today either. Yeah. So. Uh, Violet, thanks so much for coming back and for, you know, sharing your knowledge and your taste with us. What two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair these two together? Well, I picked two films that are, again, are incredibly difficult to talk about (laughs) and incredibly complicated. Okay, so the the first film is uh, Woman in the Dunes by Hiroshi Tashikahara. And the second is Kinji Fukusaku's uh, Under the Flag of the Rising Sun. Uh, and mm-hmm. I sort of, my, my, my thought about this was, um, 
I don't know, a couple of things. First, uh, I don't know if any of you follow the news, but there have been some pretty bad things going on. <laughs> sort of like, uh, uh, you know, maybe a feeling of kind of being trapped, of being uh, impossible to escape, mm-hmm. uh, being sort of closed in by society, things that are sort of uh, all-encompassing changes that you have no no ability to change. And so, uh, but also thinking a little bit beyond that, thinking about, uh, I feel like these are two films that are perhaps reflective of COVID in some way, where, you know, Woman in the Dunes sort of being trapped inside and then not really knowing how to get out or how to behave once you have the ability to get out. And uh, Mm. uh, Under the Flag of the Rising Sun, of course, being like one of those world historical events that comes along only so many times and yet you know, seeing how fragmented everyone's experience of that event is. So Mm -hmm. it was sort of those Mm -hmm. two strains of the world ending. (laughs) That was my, was my, was my motivation for preparing these. Yeah, no, I, I I thought it was cool because they, they both uh, give you this very, they both have this very uh, sort of existential lost generation of Japan, but one is dealing more with this idea of honestly just kind of like getting up every day and going to work. And the other one is dealing (laughs) with, uh, you know, a a more uh, literal confrontational history of Japan's involvement in World War II. Um, but yeah, both were were very interesting um, and mm-hmm. and adaptations of, of novels that both of these um, filmmakers were uh, kind of in love with, both passion projects kind of in the way, mm-hmm. which was interesting because, again, I, I hadn't heard of Under the Flag of the Rising Sun, but most people will be familiar with um, Kinji Fukasaku from Battle Royale. And I don't know yeah. that many people know that he, his passion project that he spent his own money on was, you know, this, an adaptation of this wartime novel <laughs> yeah so, um, yeah it's a very interesting and i'm i'm excited to um get into it here so let's jump in let's start off with uh woman in the dunes We are talking Woman in the Dunes, or Woman of the Dunes, depending on your translation. Or Sand Woman, I think, is another translation. <laughs> that one's awesome. I like that. <laughs> uh, but it's the 1964 um, uh, sort of Japanese uh, new wave drama with a little bit of absurdism, a little bit of horror in there, directed yeah. by one Hiroshi Tishigahara and uh, Tishigahara is an avant-garde filmmaker of the Japanese uh, new wave who did uh, sort of many idiosyncratic genre bending art house dramas, including the more sort of science fiction esque, like the face of another or pitfall, which has more of kind of like this mystery kind of fantasy uh, element to it. But I think for Jamie mm-hmm. and I, this is our both time, both our first times actually watching a Tishigahara film. I've just always heard about yep. them. Um, Violet, is this, uh, how many, how many have you seen? Did you have, have you, are you, more well versed in in his filmography um so i've i've seen pitfall and i've seen um a face of another and mm. <clears throat> you know all three of his or excuse me yeah those were all three of his collaborations with kobo abe who was a very famous japanese novelist um, yes uh and it's it's um 
I think were, this were, is were all of them adaptations of of Kobe's own novels. Yes. Okay. Because it, I think because again they had this real, they had this uh, uh, let's say an affinity for each other's work, and you know, <clears throat> Teshigahara right. w- was someone who like was very modest, I think, uh, and could sort of consider himself just like a cameraman and, you know, sort of like a documentarian. And he would also do a lot of sort of straight up document documentaries. Um, Mm. and some of those, I guess are included on the, like the criterion release of this film. Um, and his, 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 you know, he's sort of somebody who grew up in this sort of artistic background because his father was like, uh, like an Ike, Ikebana master, which is Japanese flower arranging, and sort of after, mm. I think after he, you know, after um, Face of Another, I think Teshikahara just completely abandoned narrative altogether and was really more focused on document documentaries and you know Ikebana stuff and 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 visual art, and so he sort of left film behind or narrative film behind, let's say. Um, but mm. he's, I think you can definitely see that uh, in this particularly, that, that interest in texture in, in oh, yeah. the different, the, you know, the natural elements of, you know, especially now when film is mostly shot, you know, everything's shot on digital and you don't really have that kind of depth of field. You don't really have that like mm. sense of, you know, earthiness and texturalness. Like this film is just <laughs> such a, treat to see and really feel and you know you kind of feel like the sand you could you could it's a film you could feel in a in a really tactile way yeah all of those like sweaty close-ups of like grains of sand like stuck to their neck like you could you can you could you can feel this movie just looking at it just looking at that you can imagine what that's like (laughs) or when a character is like there's there's tons of moments where a character is just specifically the lead where he's laying down and thinking about the sand and the sand actually like fades over his uh the, the shot of him laying down and it just you, you see it trickling down and it's like he, he constantly is thinking about it he can't escape this uh this environment i, I right. love that yeah and i think also what's interesting about the textures in the film you know even if it's just like a uh like a screen that's dividing a room or mm-hmm. you know the that the the, the little shack that they're kind of stuck in, you know, or the stand that's around them that's on the floor that's, you know, constantly coming in, invading their space. It can also change, you know, the sand becomes it water moves, sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It be, or, you know, sometimes it's literally, it becomes like, he'll be looking out and he'll see the waves washing over them. And it has the properties of water, you know, that it rusts right. things. And it, it has this weird corrosive effect. And he's, of course, you know, tell you know uh i guess you you really you don't really know the man's name until the until the end um yes you you kind of just know him as the the entomologist or the school teacher he's you know you just that's kind of how you see him who's a guy who traverses out into these dunes um in in search of of bugs and kind of it's implied like a little bit of like an escape from city life a little bit there's something kind well, of hmm. simple about the time that he spends out there and this kind of harsh kind of de- desolate location but there's some there's you know the way that it's shot too there's especially there's this kind of 
beauty to it and you know something elemental about it and then you also then throw in you know a little bit of ominous uh, elements through the score like those eerie like syncopated abrasive sounds with like shrieks and plucking and crashes and things over these images of him just walking in the desert in search and finding like this beetle and this I love the close-up shot of him playing with the beetle and the beetle like oh gosh straight up going back into the sand and he's like laughing he's like look at this fucker like trying to hide and you know (laughs) he's like I I see you in there you know I I see this world he has no idea that he is about to literally become this beetle um, which is like an amazing moment well, he also he's also clout chasing importantly. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. He wants his name in the history books, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he really the and that's and, 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 and he he maintained and sort of throughout, you know. So obviously, the plot of the film is that he he gets captured by uh, these villagers who force him to go in, down into the sand pit uh, with this woman, uh, a widow, and uh, dig up the sand so that it can be sold at like cut rate prices to the cement company mm-hmm. uh, yep. even though uh, the sand again it's this corrosive it's too salty it cannot be used for cement but that's what they're going to use it for it's it's unsafe it's an unsafe building material but yet they're they, they have no qualms about you know sort of exploiting that resource <laughs> right um, um, you know throughout his imp- you know his his capture his imprisonment he 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 maintains that you know well I'm important enough that someone's going to find me. They're going to notice. Yeah. They're going to know. They're going to see the book that's open the, on my the, the table. The Parent Teachers Association is going to yes. come hunting for me is something he <laughs> repeats like multiple times. I'm like, dude, yes. they have no idea where you are, man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 he feels like he's this real individual, that he's this real special person. And I would argue that that uh, feeling, that sort of delusion, that's also what keeps him there in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for sure, like I, I, I do love this idea that uh, he's, he's out there for clout. So ca- <laughs> a, a, a cautionary tale for all of us. <laughs> yeah. They even do things like, um, you, you know, he, he comes off as a pretty uh, caring person at first and, and in a way, you know, he, he is, he's in a very dire situation, but it also shows things like, you know, he was playing with the beetle in the sand, but then it, it will cut later on to when he's in the the hut and he's like sticking needles in them to put, you know, to uh, form his display. And I'm yeah. pretty sure even when he's sticking the needle in one of the, the bugs, it's alive still. So, you know, he, he's still he doesn't necessarily have many qualms with uh, <laughs> treating them uh, like that. Um, well, and, and, there's, and, and there's yeah. The, there, there's definitely a feeling too that like that is kind of like what it's like to participate in a larger society like you're the small little yeah. bug and you know mm-hmm. you're you're kind of struggling against these larger forces a little bit in a way and as Viola put it you know he's a very staunch individualist in the sense that you know he's just like I I matter this is like a, a you know this is a thing I I choose to have this kind of freedom that the city gives me and then when he is stripped of that he's very uh, you know, he's 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 very upset. He resists it for the entirety of the film. And I do love the sort of logistics of this situation that he's put in where the villagers, they yeah, so th- what happens is, is he he's so mm-hmm. entranced by sort of his time in the dunes that he misses his bus to go home and the villagers come up and say, well, you know, we got a place that you can stay that's like local and we can just send you back tomorrow. And they, you know, as soon as they pulled out the giant ladder and were like, go in this hole. I was like, I don't know about that, man. (laughs) It's like, it's like inky black void that he's going down and 
every step of the sound design of like the ladder creaking and his hands just like barely holding onto it. He's going, it's, it's already kind of like a struggle. And then he gets down there and there's a woman down there who cooks him a nice meal. And she, you know, she suggests that, you know, she doesn't, she kind of lives alone and that her, her husband and her child were actually both killed in this environment by the sand and that they're, you know, in a sandstorm and their bodies are buried there. And she's kind of come to terms with this is just her life. And, and she also talks about the sand as kind of like, as Violet put it, this, uh, this kind of moving thing, this, this thing that's almost like a, like it's, it's damp. It has a liquid quality. There is this, mm-hmm. and, and he's just like, that's ridiculous. It's sand. It's literally the driest thing on the planet. The opening images of the film are like intense, like micro close-ups of the the grains of of sand and everything like that they look like rocks and he doesn't really under there's all these sort of nice little details that are building up until he realizes that the next day the ladder is gone and he's now stuck in this hole and my favorite aspect of this is that this the this logistically and even Teshigahara basically admits like it doesn't make sense like sand doesn't work like that like it wouldn't right. just you know he could he, he should just be able to like climb up it or like dig a ramp out of it in some like it's like it's it's not quite how it works but there's something so horribly kind of unreal about the way that it's been filmed. This kind of like there's this dreamy quality to it, even though it's yeah. obviously a very intensely realistic, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the the way that the characters deal with this situation. It's a very realistic kind of situation for them. But the imagery is is very uh, expressive, which I find um, very interesting. And also how it turns into this very real struggle of just banal everyday existence like yeah, he has to get up every day and dig sand out of the hole and give it to these guys for basic food and sustenance and if they don't if they choose not to work they're just going to get buried in sand it's, it's like a right. literal dig or drown allegory where these you know these little sand particles build into a wave of work and suffering and uncomfortable living conditions yeah you think like i think the most frustrating part for the, uh, of the situation for him is just how simple it really is, but there's no answers and there's, there's no way to get out. Like it is just, you know, it's a, it's a hill of sand. It's, it's such a simple thing to be trapped in, but it, it's, it's a never ending cascade of it. It, he, you know, he can't escape it. And even inside there's just a mundanity to that living, um, that he can't stand it as well. Like on, you know, he was, he was on kind of this, uh, uh, adventure, at first, you know, he, he found the, mm-hmm. the dunes exciting and what he was discovering exciting. And now he's just trapped mm-hmm. within that. And they were just, they were a pleasure and a leisure. Right. <laughs> yeah. And now it's just right. it feels like such a simple problem. But, you know, there's no solution. So it, it, it's got to be absolutely frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, I, I wanted to go back to something you said about sort of his cruelty mm-hmm. or that, you know, because there is a moment where uh, the villagers he, he he tries to make a deal with the villagers who are you know captors and they're mm-hmm. they're wearing these really ghoulish masks and they, he he's like well could I see the ocean for an hour a day because it's sort of part of his plan to to get to escape and um, they say well yeah if you have sex with the woman who's down there with you in front of us we'll we'll let mm-hmm. you do it and he just it's it's so uncomfortable because he spends so long chasing her around and her fighting him off. And it's like, it's not like a short thing at all. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. quite, it's like a very they, long sequence. They even add like some, some horror imagery where the, they start using the flashlights and it just, it's, it's oh, so yeah. sporadic the way that there's like just 10 
flash like spotlights just kind of going around as this assault is happening. It's just it is very mm-hmm. nightmarish. Um, and there's even a line where I think he says like, "Well, come on, let's just pretend." But he's he's already like initiated this really aggressive situation, and it's yeah, yeah it's it, it's incredibly uncomfortable and just horrifying. <laughs> Yeah the, yeah, the central relationship between um, the entomologist and the quote-unquote just the woman is she doesn't mm-hmm. actually get a, get a name in the film. She's just the woman who she's the woman who lives in the dunes. Um, the, that dynamic is really interesting because she is someone who has been down there, and it's kind of left ambiguous whether she was someone who was previously trapped and put in there, or um, whether you know her and her previous family just kind of agreed to do it, or they were part of the village and they were selected. And then, yeah, and but yeah. she has made peace right. with this contract that she's made with the villagers. And the way that she looks at it is it's not different from his job being a teacher. She's like, I get up every day. I put in my my hours of literally just digging sand and into buckets that they then lift up and sell to the cement company. And as you know, in exchange, they my my house does not get buried in sand, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. one. I, I do yeah. like that. There's kind of like an environmental aspect to it as well, where she has to, yeah. you know, like if she didn't do it, do it yeah. she would drown in sand. Yeah. So she has to do it on some level just because of the conditions of where she lives. But then it's like, yeah, they bring her food. They bring her water. If she saves up enough um, hours or money or whatever it is that she gives her, she, you know, she is a, a able to ask for things. She she has this dream of like getting a radio. She doesn't really want to be like part of the outside world, but the idea of being able to like tune in and listen to it when she wants to is something that intrigues her. And this way of living just completely breaks the entomologist's brain. He's just like, how, how can you not see that, you know, you are being exploited? How can you not see that, you know, like you, like you have like a gun pointed to your head to do this work in a way. And she, it's, it's very interesting because he's not like entirely wrong. Like he's been kidnapped and thrown into this hole, but at the same time, the thing that he is fundamentally upset about is the idea of work <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is the exactly. idea of like the kind of thing that you like it, it is it is being used allegorically and like people have brought up like many reviewers have brought up like the the sort of like Greek Sisyphus myth with regards to this as right. well mm-hmm. the character who Zeus punished him for for cheating death and he was forced to roll a boulder up a hill every day and at, at the end it always rolled down and he had to walk down and start over again for an eternity so mm-hmm. and, and and the filmmaking does have this kind of nightmarish fable-esque sort of visual depiction of this situation that's being done. But it is very interesting how also it is, you know, just kind of meant to be this, you know, in life you make a contract to be part of this community and you have a job and you do this thing and you then are given back, you know, the basic things that you need. You are given food, you are given sleep and you are given, uh, as we'll get into, uh, you are uh, allowed to have sex. Those are the yes. those are the three yeah. things ultimately that you uh, basically want or need to do, and mm-hmm. he gets to do all of those things. And over the course of the film, we actually do kind of watch him slowly kind slowly come to if not completely agree with her worldview, kind of, you know, um, become more Adapt. accustomed to it and yeah. kind of understand yeah. it a little bit. And and I think that the way that they depict that as this sort of, you know, he can't understand it. And then there is a little bit of a romance between the two a little bit. And then, you know, he s- does sort of, you know, come to understand it a little bit more. And I think that that also, is kind of threaded out very well. 
Yeah, I also think they they don't escape the um, the conditioning that also is involved with it. Like it, it does feel like right. after so much time, he's kind of like like for instance when he discovers the 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 little water system within that that hole that he finds. <clears throat> excuse yeah. me, within the dune pit. Yes. Um, it does feel as if at a certain point he kind of wants to almost show the villagers what he's discovered eventually and, and, and almost have oh, like yeah. a sense of pride because of that. And it's, it's like that moment, like, you know, when you're at work, you don't necessarily uh, want to be there. But if you're bo- if you do something great, and your boss congratulates <laughs> you, you do feel good, even though you're in this very forced situation. So I feel like right. he's kind of been like conditioned by the end as as well as um, understands mm-hmm. the perspective as well. Well, well his 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 uh, individualism is coming out again. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it's like I'm I'm the king of these these villagers because I've figured out this way to extract water from the sand. Right. And that and therefore, you know, so because originally he was building a trap to trap right. a crow so that he would strap again, again, this totally, he would send a message to it. Yeah. Complete <laughs> nutso plan. That's not going to work, but he's still, he's still very intent on it. Cause he's getting more and more desperate. Um, or yeah. rather his, his thinking is changing radically. And you know, he, he, at the end of the film, uh, the woman is having like pretty serious stomach pains. She's pregnant. She might have an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy it's not it's not really clear what's going on but she's very sick and she has to be lifted out and he stops like the chieftain and he's like hey mm-hmm. can i show you something and he's like what and he's like actually i'll wait we'll wait for later <laughs> and it's yeah. like he's so proud of himself for doing again this very sort of like basic uh trick of of you know but 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 that it, he would become a valued individual that yeah. again he's 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 ascending the ladder in this weird rudimentary society one that you know he just like the sand you know you can't stop it with individual action you can't stop it with collective action it's just something that is constantly coming and you have to you have to deal with it and that's and i think that's just what's um that's that's what's so perverse about this is that as a metaphor for society or just how different societies function mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and or just, you know, the the inability to, I don't know, uh, protect uh, abortion rights or stop school sh- shootings or what have you. Um, but, you know, pick pick whatever. Again, it's a very uh, I Kahara said that the whole is could be anywhere on the planet. So pick whatever uh, <laughs> pointless, tragic, unbelievable situation uh, that you want. And it's, yeah, I mean, I that. think, I think that's, what's really cool about it is that it, it like the allegorical use of it is that it's like anything that's coming at you, like on, on every level, we are given kind of like this incredibly bleak raw deal, <laughs> no yep. matter which way yeah. you kind of look at it. Yep. And it's just, you know, how do you, how do you keep going when like you're literally looking that in the face and it's so blatant and you can see it and like everything about it is like literally you're like I have to dig sand every day for these people who are going to build shitty you know uh buildings dangerous built da- dangerous buildings could, as well yeah, yeah I mean I and I love too that she says well that's not our business like exactly. we live here <laughs> like who cares you know like <laughs> exactly. that's the just digging the sand know. yeah exactly <laughs> 
Yeah, and and yeah, I think that that is such a like a, a brilliant way of capturing these kind of you know these these existential feelings that these characters are having, and then uh, to again too to also make it kind of so so lush in the filmmaking as well makes it interesting. Just oh, yeah. kind of making do with the the very uh, again rudimentary life that he has to live, like the way that he shoots like. You know, the, again, sort of like the images of the of of the sand moving like water, as if it's going to drown them, and leaking downwards, and even mm-hmm. cutting to that during scenes where, like, the first time that they're having sex together, we keep mm-hmm. going back to like that image, as well as these like close-ups of their you know sweaty bodies covered in in uh, sand, and they the, often the film like is say um to I think there's one moment where he says like the sand makes everything worse, it makes it rougher. I think he puts his facial hair mm. against her face just to show how like rough playfully it seems as now. well and, too. Though he's yeah. kind of getting yeah. used to it at that point, where he's just like because I because I think they say maybe next time we should ask as part of our our food package we should ask for like a like a you know like a, a shaver for you or something like that. And he's just like ah well you know I'll get used to mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he does and, and, uh, th- that that part. Well, yeah, that part I think is really cool because again this is a film that's interested in both you know looking at this very bleak fable-esque elemental horrible reality and your search for purpose and control within it um you know in this very basic just exchange of labor and resources for basic necessities um but i i found the long periods because this film is about two and a half hours yeah and there is a lot of time used in the duration of the film on just kind of like getting into the sort of banality and beauty of like the actual just routines and the mm. rhythms of, you know, how these characters express control. I was reminded a little bit of um, Gene Daleman, which is a film that I mm. think a lot about and not quite in the same way. Uh, but like th- that's a film where I think that is hugely involved with this idea of she does all of these patriarchal tasks throughout the film. And the routine and the rhythm is how she expresses her control over them in a way. And when that gets upset, that is kind of like the part in the film that breaks the film. And there is something here, too, where these characters do, you know, because, again, at first he's in a horror situation. He is like the ladder is gone. The the, the inkiness of everything and the, you know, it's very unnerving in terms of soundtrack and photography in certain moments. It's a it's a nightmarish quality to it. And. It's he becomes comfortable to it by creating a rhythm with her every day and doing these things where mm-hmm. they like, you know, you go through the process of making food together, of uh, bathing each other. Like there's like a whole like uh, four minute sequence of them just like rubbing foam over each other's bodies when they can finally, you know, actually have a chance to have water and have a shower and everything. And so, he, you know, his end of resistance comes with creating a life with this woman and creating a life with her is actually the thing that makes it tolerable, which is, you know, kind of a nice thought, even if the, <laughs> the situation, uh, it, you know, you're, you're never not still scared of the situation a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, the thing, the thing about the ending that is especially, you know, terrifying, it's not that just he doesn't go, which is awful. <laughs> but, you know, after, you know, it sort of tells himself, I'll run away later. Uh, yeah, but, he's kind but of that, like trapped in a limbo almost where he doesn't know whether he wants to stay or whether he still wants to fight to get out. He's just like, well, right. I, I found that, it so that, interesting that his, like, because his first escape, right, is the one where the vastness of the outside world after he's been locked in for so long is scary. Too much. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and it, it's like, he's it, going, yeah. 
it's almost like having the rules and the understanding and the logic of the other place. There's a comfort to that. Whereas he he runs around in like the the vast desert. He is hounded by dogs. He falls into like a pile of quicksand and he mm-hmm. needs to beg the villagers for help to get out. And like that sequences is one of like the most horror sequences in in the film. And literally that is the moment where you should be like, well, he's free. He's making his own choices. He's he's making a run for it. You know, like this is what he should want on some level. But I love that at that point in the film, that is more terrifying than when he gets put back in. And obviously he spends the entire film thinking about still finding a way out and making the plans with the crow and trying to sort of uh, use ingenuity to make his way out. Well, I mean, but the thing is, his is that his the 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 equilibrium that's been established over the film you know, that the woman has been lifted out because of some sort of medical emergency. Mm -hmm. She could never return. She could just die. Like he could just be down there by himself until they capture someone else. Right. Because, and the, and the fact that they have like the official report again, this, this totally chilly, uh, you know, sort of antiseptic thing is that they have, you know, they there's this official report that says, that gives the man's name and it says, you know, Junpei Niki or whatever is been, has been missing for seven years. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. you know, we haven't seen seven years worth of, you know, th- seven years has not transpired in the film. So we no. know that he's, he's, he's. The, 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 he's they only say st- one number and I think it's three months. At, at one point they mentioned that he's been down there or maybe it was only three weeks. I can't remember exactly, the, but like it, the, that's the only met ti- mention of time at all that happens in yeah, this film. She's, yeah. So she's been pregnant for three months, right? That, that, I think that's what you, the, the only sort of marker of time. But again, like right. that, that in this sort of like, uh, you know, this totally flat uh, sand, like, you know, in, in this desert, where there are no identifying features, where you do sort of lose your identity, where you lose your sense of place, you lose your sense of time. I love the focus on identity too. Like that, that part too, where he mentions that uh, everyone is defined by like all the paperwork that they have and like the contracts that you sign and your IDs and everything. Like that's a great moment because he doesn't have those things anymore in this world. And he's like, am I a person? Like, am I like, is this like, do I, do I have like, what is going on? (laughs) And he has to, you know, I get to be kind of come accustomed to that a little bit. Right. And then at the end, what is the what is the paperwork that defines him? He's missing. We don't know where he is. This man, this man is no more. You know, like that's I mean, that's what and yeah, that the the indeterminacy of his own position is it so that you know that perhaps he's, you know, he's decided to put off running away for tomorrow. You don't really know if that's just something he's telling himself because he or if he's adjusted or or, right. you know, or if he'll be down there forever by himself. Like, it's it's just so terrifying and um, impersonal and just, like, that, you know, it, despite his sort of, like, assertions that, that you know, um, the state, you know, like, someone will come find him, that he's mm-hmm. just been completely erased and that he doesn't matter, even in, yeah. you know, and that he's he's... You know, this the society that he so adored, you know, life in Tokyo, the things that he believed in are also proven false and just as sort of pointless as life in the sand pit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and then and yeah. then obviously he he opts to stay there, and I find the the opting really interesting because he's basically he opts to stay there, and he he sort of brings up this idea that he might show this sort of irrigation system that he's come up with in order to pull water from the <laughs> sand, and he 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 looks like he's going to tell the villagers about it, and he doesn't, and he keeps it to himself, and there's something interesting in that in just that. Because he feels like that might bring kind of like an end to the time that he's spending with the villagers. And instead, by keeping it to himself, he's just creating more water for him. He's just making his day to day life a slightly more comfortable in the pit. And he's like, honestly, that is what that is the most individual thing that you could do in that situation is just be like, come to terms with this uncomfortable hellscape where everything is covered you know it's it's so dry every part of your body is has covered in sand it's stuck to every hair and pore on your face in the way that it's shot and you know you are trapped in this exploitative deal um but you know it's like you have found you know a little bit of romance you have found a you know or at least someone who shares a common uh existence with you and you have found a way to make that living slightly more tolerable because they both work together. So they get more sand out every day. And actually, you know, they actually clean the house up a little bit. At one point, you know, there's not sand all over the floor. And he's actually, you know, he's asked them to, like, bring him cigarettes and he's like reading comics and stuff. Yep. You know, like he, yeah. he has found a little bit of ways to, you know, I will live say- in this situation. I like that comic book uh, part because he reads it and sees like a. a he just gets mad quote. about it because it's <laughs> well, funny. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a joke it's about the boss crushing the worker, right? Yeah. yeah why, I, why I love that? Is you take it like both. a good sport. <laughs> He's yeah, getting like run over by what? What is he driving? It's yeah. It's just like a, a, a thing you smash pavement down with, sort of like right. Yeah, it's right. like that, and it's like that both sides of him again, where he's not quite sure if he's you know. Uh, being conditioned into just accepting this or if he's kind of getting legitimately comfortable with it. So at first he laughs at the comic and then he gets mad. And I just like that. He right. has that sudden realization of like, Hey, wait, this kind of connects to me. <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is <laughs> upsetting. <laughs> yeah. I thought that that was very funny. Um, and yes. also going back to the, uh, the escape uh, part, I, I just love the, the nighttime photography there where it's like you oh, can just yeah. see oh, yeah. nothing but darkness a lot of the time and maybe some like outlines of trees and then when the villagers start to realize that he's made his escape they they start to turn on these the, the flashlights but you can only see like three or four at first and then as the villagers get into a bigger group and chase him you see like 10 to 12 flashlights just getting closer and closer to him it's actually very scary um, oh, yeah. And then uh, and I and Josh, I do agree with you on like, I think he gets a little bit uncomfortable and overwhelmed with the vastness. But I, I don't think we can ignore that. He also was trapped in quicksand and then put back into the pit, <laughs> you know, by force. Yeah. Well, no, that, that was that yeah. was what I said, because he has to call them for help and then they put him back. But it, it, it is you. interesting that like yeah, when he's gotcha. back. You know, that stops being like a, you know, like it, for me, it's really interesting because like that, again, it stops two being things. It's like because the guy is, he, you know, he's struggling. He needs help, but it's the only people that can help him are the very people that put him in the pit. So it's it's just exactly. this like horrible situation yeah. in a way. Exactly. There's a, yeah. the, and there's there's something about like how just dangerous that escape is versus like mm-hmm. he is yeah. starting at that point in the film to come to terms with like there is some comfort to just accepting this place and then yeah when he gets the chance to escape again and he looks at the vastness of the ocean and he looks at it he did, doesn't really 
and you could just be like, well, maybe he doesn't just doesn't know his way back. Like logistically, maybe he just literally can't figure out how to get back. Um, right. But, it but it's also like he, do, he doesn't yeah. spend that long yeah. figuring it out. He's just like, you know what? I kind of am just I'm just going to go back. Yeah, not <laughs> I'm right. just going <laughs> to yeah, yeah. And there's there, there there's something bleak, of course, maybe to that. But there's comes. also there's something about how it gets you swept up in his um, experience, I think, of, you know, slowly coming to terms with that and kind of seeing, you know, kind of you know, some of the the beautiful aspects of, you know, this relationship that he can have with her, mm-hmm. um, even under these very clearly nightmarish conditions and this kind of, you know, this forceful contract that they've both been put under, which obviously is never um, looked away from, like even until the end when they are saying like, yeah, put on like a sex show for us, like force her to put on a sex <laughs> yeah. show for us. Yeah. Um, like that's just like a horrible, horrible um sequence and yeah all of the stuff that's shot at night and when they're shining like the spotlights in that too or like for me one of my favorite uses of of the darkness is when he wakes up in the first morning and she, he was kind of there was this bizarre surreal aspect to him seeing her get up in the middle of the night and like work all night and her saying yeah you don't have to work on the first day and he's like what do you what do you mean the first day um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but 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 when he wakes up and he just sees her like glistening completely naked in the darkness and when we actually first see that shot it's it looks like she's completely in a void like universe like yeah. it actually yeah. fades in through the like. um the lighting setups it actually br- it brings her body in first and then the actual room comes fades in second. Um, and when he wakes up and he sees that and he's just totally like one, he's sort of erotically entranced by that image. And then he's like, okay, but I'm going to go, I'm just going to leave. Um, but, but that part when she's working and he, uh, is eating food at the table and there's this beautiful shot of outside the door frame. It's like dark and he brings a candle or he brings the one lamp over and Mm -hmm. he go, he walks over through the door to go see what she's doing as she's working. And the lamp light completely changes the lighting setup of the entire world in that moment Mm -hmm. where like it's lighting up the room and then he leaves the room is pitch black and it's starting to light up, you know, like, uh, the, the hole now just the outside of the house and even just the image of the the house like half buried in sand that yeah. almost has like a yeah. mythological quality to it it feels like a painting uh, like how old oh, is yeah. this yeah because it's I, just I, been I, here I forever think, yeah or that it's been because she doesn't have a helper it's been sort of subsumed by the environment in this way that she mm-hmm. can't entirely control but i mean i think you know thinking about this film in terms of you know the, the time in which it was released. So first of all, obviously there's the huge, I, I would argue a lot of the, the sort of the visual style is drawing from surrealism, you know, in mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of like landscape photography, you know, sort of area, a lot of early land aerial landscape photography. And also mm-hmm. I think in paintings by certain surrealist painters, you know, sort of conflating, you know, the female form with a landscape and sort mm-hmm. of finding, yeah. Yeah, that- you know, and, at certain find, points, they literally dissolve those images together to be like one image, right? Ex- exactly. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Or even like when, but then at other points, it'll be like her face sort of matches like, it's like a direct match on like a beef cutlet or something. And it's sort of oh, like, right. well, so it's sort of like, she like, well, what are we really? We're just pieces of meat. And, and like that, those sort of weird uh, pairings and, and the echoes, visual echoes and stuff is, is just so amazing. And of course, like that was like the international art house style of the time. Cause if you look at something like, you know, 
Bergman, like that sort of that yeah. sort of level of of art, you know, visual uh, artistry and sort of that the, the ex- existential questions, like all this sort of stuff is very much. I mean, it was a huge film when it came out. Well, yeah, well, this was reason. the one that got Japan its first Oscar nomination, right? So like right. this was like considered yeah. like Japan being welcomed into the European art house uh, history a little bit exactly. in, in this moment. It made it to the canon. But it, I mean, also, I think, you know, it, I mean, obviously, if you read anything about this film, the, the questions about in, individualism and, and what makes an individual sort of beaten to death. But, you know, those were such huge questions in the mid-century because, mm-hmm. you know, not just because of things like, you know, concentration camps, you know, and the phenomenon of learned helplessness, you know, Stanley mm-hmm. Milgram's experiments where it was sort of like, well, how could somebody... Follow, you know, asking the question, how could somebody who's a, you know, a morally sound person follow the instructions of a Nazi? How could how could humans be so cruel? And mm-hmm. then also, of course, thinking about, uh, you know, my, the fears of mind control in, in, you know, when dealing with communism and the idea that, you know, uh, like things like the Manchurian candidate, uh, the, you know, soldiers who were captured in North Korea, who said, you know, who were saying all these terrible things about America and then, you know, the U S being the C the U S and the CIA like, no, 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 no. They were, they were brainwashed. They, they don't really mean that. That was all, you know, the, the, the commies have this amazing ability to, you know, brainwash these people or even. Yeah. We, we, we talked about the Manchurian candidate. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah. that's a good comparison. Yeah. I didn't like, think about it. So, so or, or, or even, you know, thinking about how, and I mean, we'll probably get into this uh, with the under the flag of the rising sun, but just how Americans were taught to understand how Japan during wartime, like it was a it was a race of brainwashed people as opposed to Germans where there are good Germans and there are bad Germans. So there are all these different sort of elements of and, and, and in the in the era at that time of just sort of like uh you know, what makes an individual, what can sort of sway them away, what can what can pull them into this undercurrent of something truly horrible. But then, of course, as this film points out, uh, that's society, baby. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, yeah. I, I was I was actually you just reminded me of by making that point. We, we just talked about not that long ago, a film called The Cremator. And that is something yeah. that I was yeah. thinking about with this because it's a kind of came out around similar time period, I think, in the just in the late 60s. And there there is something I think about how filmmakers around this time were very specifically and pointedly using absurdism to make this to make this point that they're making. And there is something so interesting about, you know, how that film was, you know, a concentration camp survivor wrestling with how absurd the machinery and the banality of what it was that, you know, was actually done there. And here I think they do it really well just in the concept of the premise where I mean there's a, even a line where he says it. He's like, living here is like building a house on water when a boat would make more sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- th- I think there's something so logistically insane about this premise that is like not much more crazy than some of the things that you actually do obligate to. Like when you actually sit down and think about it, and if you do, it's like, why why do we spend like 40 to 60 hours a week <laughs> working? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I think that it's it's very... 
you know, I think that that film kind of accesses that feeling in you in this where it's just like, you know, obviously it, it's heightened to make a point and to mm -hmm. express this idea. But it is something that people do just experience every day and watching this character wrestle with these things. And, you know, some of the lines that he gets when he's like flailing against this overwhelming force you know like they early on he's like men aren't dogs you can't put them on a leash you can't you can't right. do this to us or one of mm -hmm. my favorites is the when he's talking to her he's like doesn't all of this seem pointless to you he's like are you, are you shoveling sand to live or are you living to shovel sand uh at, at, at a certain point in this this current sort of contractual obligation that you have to do this and you know it, it it's just yeah it's very interesting being putting us into this character who you know is obviously being kidnapped and obviously in a nightmare situation um but it is something that you also just kind of experience you know it, it's real philosophical questions expressed absurdly that people mm -hmm. just do deal with every day um, yeah. And yeah, I, th I think that's why it probably did, you know, why it did does feel kind of universal in a way and why mm -hmm. the director can come out and say, yeah, the sand, uh, you could literally imagine the sand as anything you're dealing with in your life. You know, there is yeah. an overwhelming force that is is constantly moving and threatening to drown you and you have to find your own purpose and way of existing knowing that it's there. <laughs> you know um yeah. so yeah i think that, that this film honestly i think it's just uh incredible and if we're pivoting towards maybe reductive rating round on it um for me this was the five um nice. i had a really great first time experience with this and i immediately went why haven't i picked up this criterion already so i'm i'm gonna go do that next but yeah just how um you know, sort of strikingly composed it is and how meditative and fable-like um, it is. And also how at once it is like completely banal and routine with the way that these characters have to live in this nightmare world. But also I did think that how sensually shot um, it was at a lot of point. I mean, a lot of people describe this as an erotic film, which I, there's, there's, there, <laughs> there's, really? there's a, elements, elements. <laughs> there's a strange kind of eroticism I guess you could say too I mean like the sex scene <laughs> is not romantic I would describe it it is kind of like they go through the motions of it the first time that they do it. I'd say yeah. the stuff that's actually romantic is actually weirdly enough the like the house chore stuff. Like and I thought that to stuff understand was nice. Understand each other is much more romantic. Yeah, sharing yeah. their histories and like smoking together and making food together and bathing yeah. each other and you know getting removing uh, the uncomfortable sand from each other's bodies and <laughs> you know I mean he is entranced by the you know seeing her naked body for the first time and stuff. Like there's elements yeah. there I guess you could say, but it's also you know it's also making a point about you know like this is something that characters kind of go people go through the motions of because it's like the only you know when you live in a world like this is the only thing that you can do it's eat right. sleep and fuck that is like <laughs> you know that is because that is the ultimate freedoms because <laughs> i will i will say that in the novel um the kobo abe says that you know he's working with a very specific type type of person right that, that um right that the that the ento, you know that the entomologist that this type of person who is an entomologist is typically kind of like this very precise and homosexual character, which is like mm. a, and it's sort of an interesting thing to kind of throw in there. And I mean, obviously, the film it doesn't touch on that at all. That mm -hmm. if he's straight or gay or bi or whatever, but the idea that if you're familiar with the book, perhaps there is this idea in the back of your head that you know maybe he is so changing sexuality to fit the situation that is interesting no, i'm gonna have i'm gonna have to read that yeah 
Because that would that, that would make uh, the sex scene make more sense because the sex scene is shot very <laughs> strangely in the way that it is the first time that they meet each other. Even though I guess you could just say, you know, when two people have sex under those conditions, that might just be what it looks like. It's not the most yeah, attractive yeah, thing you've messy. seen in your life. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, I mean, that's the, the ambiguity of that, I think, is interesting and in that, you know, it's sort of not again it's 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 one of those like i would argue like the ending that you can sort of read it how you want and and it it could be as nefarious as you uh, would like it to be really (laughs) yeah yeah but i but yeah so i just again very very uh well shot the close-up on the beads of sweat the texture that violet Mm -hmm. brought up the that that like the tangibility of the way that it uses sand and and skin and their bodies and the the way that it strips down like the basics of life and and this style like they merge with each other like the elemental quality of how this shoots the dunes matches you know life being stripped down to the essentials of you putting in the work and not dying and eating food and sleeping. And it's kind of genius how it makes you kind of realize that, you know, through this nightmares absurdist situation. And then, you know, eventually do come to, you know, a, a very bleak sense of it. I will agree. And maybe tragic, but there is a level of comfort and acceptance, I think, by the end of this film that I was um, surprised by considering the very specific uh, situation that this character <laughs> is in and how obviously horrible um, it is. But yeah, mm-hmm. for anyone who is like, why do I spend all of my time serving scam artists who um, want my labor and resources and they sell in exchange for me just being able to live? Uh, this might be the film for you. <laughs> yeah. Check it out, friends. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to give it a, a really high four right now. Um, I really did enjoy it. I just, uh, it's, it is a long film, and I think I just want to sink into it a little bit more. But I, I really love the. You want to what? Sorry? <laughs> yeah, no pun intended, honestly. Sorry. There. Yeah. Not write that down. Uh, um, but yeah, I really like the uh, the meditative quality of it. I found the score, especially when he's just kind of traveling Ooh, yeah. throughout the dunes in the beginning, to be very hypnotic um, and kind of mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of almost experimental. creepy. And yeah, it, it feels like something almost more supernatural is coming, but it, it never really does. And, in, and instead it's just this very like mundane situation that turns into a nightmare. And, and I think the, the score kind of reels you along um, until you get into that situation. And, and I really like that. And I also just love the, uh, the nature photography, especially at the beginning. Oh, like yeah. there's some amazing close-ups of like dragonflies and uh, beetles. And then of course you mentioned the, the, the sand that kind of does a zoom out until you see the entirety of the dunes. Um, there's also a great shot of when he's going over one of the big hills and you can see him at the top just looking down. And it's just... it's just the vastness of of the dunes and the area it's just it's unbelievable it's really really quite good um and uh yeah and i think that there is something very scary about the ending where you're not quite sure where his headspace is whether he's been conditioned into thinking uh this might be a life that i can live or if he's actually going to one day try to escape after he's accomplished his water project to show off to the villagers um (laughs) now the seven years uh uh, of of disappearing definitely doesn't bode well but um 
it, you know, it's still, I, I still find it to be kind of in this, this limbo that I like. Yeah. So, well, the, uh, the, what I love is just that the ambiguity is there. Like that's a dark yeah. thing to think about that he chose not to leave and he stays yes. there for seven years, but yeah. Yep. Yep. It is interesting to imagine one where like he built a well down there and they have an overabundance of water that they don't need to actually, you know, con like it's water that they make themselves that they don't actually have to work for with the villagers. And maybe she came back and she actually had the baby. And there's right. a, there's yeah. an optimistic worldview where yeah, it's like he were so. It, and I mean, you know, there's nothing in the film to say, you know, like the, the detail in the film points to, you know, he's still her, thinking about leaving. Her family died. Uh, so th like, it's very possible that just didn't come to pass. And maybe, you know, she just died there and maybe he's just still stuck there and he right. never found out a way to escape. Uh, but it, it is interesting that it kind of leaves it up in the air with this guy looking at this bleak, overwhelming force and just being like, all right, I'm here. Yeah. Mañana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> deal with and, it tomorrow yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> I feel that um, and I did uh, I did get to watch uh, Pitfall um, as well just to to see a little bit more oh, of his great. filmography and there was there's actually a, a shot that he he kind of replicates like in this one it's when it's at the very beginning when he's going up the dune and you can just see him kind of you know struggling and it's very hot and and he's just in mid frame and then in Pitfall there's actually it's it's framed the exact same way but uh this guy is um really struggling I think it might have been when he's stabbed or, or something along those lines but he's it's the same framing and he's just crawling through mud and it just uh mirrored the images a lot um and and pitfall itself is about uh kind of kind of similar in a way it's about a group of people being trapped in a in a space forced to do work rather than one individual but it does seem like uh hiroshi had a, a lot of this on his mind um and and uh you know that's what he wanted to I guess, well, I guess it was Kobo that, that wrote it, but it seemed like these guys had, you know, very similar interests um, with both of the films that I watched. So, yeah, I would highly recommend uh, Pitfall as well. Um, very, very good. So right now, the four, but it could, it could definitely get there. I just want to sink into it more. No pun intended. For you, Violet. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I mean, obviously I picked it. I'm going to give it a five. Nice. Because I just, I just, just, it's just, you know, it's like a... Um, it's sort of the ideal uh, mid-century art house film. It's just so uh, beautifully made. It's so haunting. Um, it has, you know, these different genre elements. It's in, and, and again, I think if a, if uh, Toshikahara was a lesser filmmaker, uh, this would have felt mm. very crappy because it's basically <laughs> like a, it's a two-hander, right? It's a, it's like in a very small space and yet, and you know, yeah, the claustrophobic it, element was something we didn't touch on that much, but right. it, it does have that quality to it. That's it, just incredible. Like how locked in you are into this house surrounded by sand that they right. have to uses, dig themselves out. Yeah. Of. He uses a lot of different, um, like camera moves just within the house itself. It does feel oh, like totally. there was a lot of places yeah. to move. Very yeah. elegant camera moves. Yeah. It's awesome. Because I mean, I'll I'll just because uh, you know I was on a plane recently and I tried watching Mass, which is you know I'm sure it's a perfectly all right play, but it mm. felt like a play, you know, where it's mm. just very closed yeah. in space and all of the sort of the things that the director was trying to do to make it visual visually interesting was very hackneyed. And I would also say, um, oh, what was it called? I guess it was like The Humans or something, which oh, yeah, it had I like Stephen Young. Like that, that's another one that was a very famous play in New York and it 
has that same sort of feeling where it's like, this is so much a play and, you know, trying to make it arty in a very conventional way. And this is, this Mm. is obviously, this is not based on a play, but you could see it could be staged as a play. The, the, the story itself, it's a very simple, it doesn't require that many, you know, sort of different, uh, you know, different, different settings. It feels so tactile and fully realized. And there are so many different, you know, uh, spatially and what he's doing. With I'd, the I'd imagine too, maybe like psychological subjectivity would be something that those films might be missing a little bit too. Oh, oh sure, I, yeah. haven't, I, I haven't seen either, <laughs> but I, I just felt like this film was like really locked into his perspective and his head and the way that he just like, even like the voyeuristic elements of him looking at her naked and, you know, him yeah. looking at this big thing and becoming confused and scared and then, right. you know, kind of reacting from there. And, you know, a, a lot I mean, of, a, a lot, a lot of stage adaptations I've seen all do kind of lose that psychological aspect that, you know, some of the best art filmmakers were just gifted at doing. I mean, it feels like a damn movie, which is so, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, you know, it's a increasingly rare thing to be like, okay, this is a damn movie. So I, yeah, I'll give it a five. And um, yeah, even though I, I do agree, sometimes it is like the length of it is sometimes, uh, I've watched it a couple times. Sometimes daunting. it is a little bit daunting. Yes. You should not yeah. let yourself be daunted. It will totally suck you in. You'll mm. be sucked into the quickstand of yeah. this, uh, this, 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 this film. And, it, and it's, and it's wonderful. And I would, you know, his other films, you know, you were talking about pitfall. They, there are these really interesting echoes across his filmography that I think, yeah. you know, it's time well spent. Mm. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, people. People, I think we're we're trying to sell them on a film about the uh, the bleakness and the sparseness of existence. But it is, it, it, and I mean, no. And I I love Bresson, but it's like the the these are not you know. And this is a stripped down film in a way. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't explain exactly why. But I found this just like really really engaging, even when it was being yes. repetitive and and static, and it was just yeah, constantly patient, psychologically so. and philosophically I, I, yeah. engaging. And the genre I, elements help a lot too. Yeah. No, again, and that's so hard to do. And he yeah. just does it. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, everyone should be watching up on Woman in uh, the Dunes on for all the reasons that we've said. I believe. Yeah. Amazing. And and uh, I, every, we should all plan a trip to go to the Tatori Sand Dunes <laughs> in Japan. Hell yeah. And um, get 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 lost there. Well, do some well, bugs. He, um, he, at one point, at one point, he's like, you know, when he's sort of running out of ideas and getting more desperate, he tells a woman, well, couldn't we turn this into like a tourist area, which is like <laughs> such a perfect line, because I mean, again, if you, again, like sort of the environmental aspect of it and sort of this as like a metaphor for climate change or the inability to do anything about climate change. It's like, well, what do you do with a place that has all of its natural resources extracted? You turn it into a tourist attraction. You know, like you think about all the, you know, like all of the Caribbean islands, like that's sort of what, you know, you, you have, you have the sand and the sea and like that, that, that mentality I thought was, or that little line, just hilarious. It's, yeah. That, that's a it, great moment. Cause, cause he says like my fascination with sand is what brought me here. Right. Yes. Like it's probably like, 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 like the, 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 the postcard salesman who came before me and was previously around this here, he probably was attracted by the same thing. Like let's develop yep. the shit out of this place. And that's such right. a hilarious reaction to the like almost Greek myth level struggle of existence (laughs) that he has found himself in. He's like, let's turn into a tourist destination. Let's go. People love it. 
people will love it but yeah yeah (laughs) all right that'll wrap it up for woman in the dunes here we're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about under the flag of the rising sun stick around All right, we are back and we are talking Under the Flag of the Rising Sun, the 1972 Japanese uh, war drama slash kind of has kind of like a, a mystery element to it mm-hmm. as well. Directed yep. by detective, um, yeah, detective quality. Yeah, it has a, a Kinji Fukasaku, who is a filmmaker like um, Teshikahara. We're talking about for the first time on this show, and the only actual film I've seen of his is Battle Royale. Even though I've been meaning yeah, me to too. do the Yakuza papers yeah. stuff for like a long time, I've heard that those are just amazing. But mm. I've I've been waiting to see if that Blu-ray set that Arrow put out ever like actually comes back into print or whatever it is. Mm. Um, been kind of waiting, and I know that he was also the Japanese. Uh, he did the Japanese portion of the uh, '70s war film Tora 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 as well that uh, Richard right. Flesher directed I think the American uh, part of it which was really cool because he he did that uh, only because Akira Kurosawa dropped out of doing it and they were oh, like damn. well we need, a, we need another guy to, to kind of jump into it that was because before that you know he wasn't like a very well established filmmaker it was because of doing Tora 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 that he was able to get this film and the Yakuza papers uh, actually funded because, um, oh, okay. you know, he kind of increased his level of uh, uh, clout a little bit because prior to that, he was doing like four higher genre work with like actors like Sonny Chiba um, awesome. and, you know, stuff that wasn't getting him like a lot of notice. And yeah, then he did Tora Tora Tora. All of a sudden he was like, you know, here's money. And all of a sudden he was like, you, you can make whatever you want. So he used literally his own money that he made off Tora 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 to buy the rights to this novel um, under the flag of the rising sun, which then he decided that he was going to um, adapt himself and the success of which was enough to get him his battles of honors and humanity without honor and humanity and Yakuza paper series, which became insanely um, stylistically influential. Um, They went Mm. on to make like what, like seven sequels to that. And I think so. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but I knew that uh, he really wanted to make a war film because from what I read up on him, he had some really terrible World War II experiences where he was drafted and he was working in the munitions department. And when he was fifteen, when he was fifteen, that's nuts. Yeah, Violet, give us the rundown. What was his? Because I I didn't read much deeper than just you know seeing people talking about it, but I didn't see all I saw was that he worked in a munitions department and he saw like you know schools and stuff getting blown up. Well, like his whole class was drafted. Damn. Which is just right. like, again, that's that's like to, to give you a sense of how desperate things were mm. at that time and in, in, at that point of the war. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I think he I think he survived a bombing and there was like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, seeing classmates die. Like it was very it's uh, again, I don't I don't know, like the full, full details, but it's it all sounds like very horrible and intense and like a terrible 
clearly the I mean I think probably like everyone of his generation he was extremely marked by that experience and you know keeping in mind that people you know if you were a kid you know all the food was being rationed you know there were cities were being huge cities were being firebombed there were tons and tons of civilian casualties like it was uh, a really horrible visceral time and so i think you know his the way he depicts violence in his films um even though you know it's sort of uh i think particularly in this one um it shows that he he has sort of a a profound understanding of violence in a way that perhaps uh other people who haven't been through war do yeah and he, he seems to have a hyper focus on like the um like several times throughout this film it shows the death toll of certain battles and just like how many people were lost uh well not just battles civilians it wasn't well it wasn't just battles it's like people hiding in the mountains starving to death sure yeah absolutely which is like absolutely. which is like because that i mean and you you see like the you know photographs archival photographs of the bodies that were recovered and again this mm. is like what a horrible way to die as a soldier you know, as you're yeah. basically because the Americans, the Australians were coming into the Pacific theater. They were. Um, and of course, obviously, I, I, I mean, I will just say quickly that this this movie, um, I was I was interested in seeing this movie because I've always loved uh, the Emperor's Naked Army Marches On, which deals with the mm. similar subject of um you know, soldiers in World War II resorted to cannibalism because they were basically starved out um, and just sort of left to die by the Japanese army. And it's it's a really, and, and just how the level of forgetting and denial and um, sort of governmental cover-up that, that took place in the, you know, the years after the war and that no one wanted to to, you know, sort of support or compensate or help survivors of this you know what was like hell on earth but yeah i i i thought that this was um really interesting because when it started off and very sort of um loosely it follows this war widow played by uh sachiko hidari um named saki and she is determined to essentially find out what happened to her husband who she was only married to for six months before he was drafted into the war. She was pregnant with his child and he, he died during the war and it is suggested that he was um, court-martialed for deserting the war effort, efforts and subsequently executed, which means that he doesn't get to be mourned alongside all of the sort of like official uh, sort of memorial statues and kind of ceremonies that Japan puts on in remembering all of these sort of like fallen soldiers. And also she does not qualify for military welfare benefits as the widow of a veteran. And mm-hmm. so these two things combined send her on essentially a, uh, a 20 to 30 year long journey going up to the present day of the film when it was released in 1972 of her, you know, trying to get either her husband's name cleared or at least find out, you know, what actually happened because there's lots of details about, you know, like the official records are uh, missing or have been destroyed and there are very few witnesses to actually determine what it was that happened. The official story that various uh, different sort of bureaucratical departments keep telling her kind of changes depending on how it is they feel that day half the time and she's been <laughs> constantly fighting this battle against this trying to, one, 
you know, maybe getting some military benefits would obviously, you know, help her life materially. But two, you know, there's this, you know, there's this thing in the back of her head that there's been no cathartic reckoning with this war on this personal level for her that she needs to have figured out. Her husband didn't seem like the kind of person who would have, um, uh, done what it is that they're saying that he's doing. And when it started, I honestly thought the whole movie was going to be like this Kafka-esque, like a bureaucratic thing where she just goes to the various different departments and, yeah. you know, trying to mm-hmm. find the paper trail and, you know, trying to figure out all this stuff. And I was... It was it was intriguing to me that it kind of starts that way, and then the people first people she run in, runs into kind of feel so bad for her that they give her the names of all of the official witnesses who did not actually respond to the inquiry and maybe could provide new information that would help her case. So the movie becomes a series actually of what reminded me of. Um, uh, the Darden film uh, Two Days One Night um, mm. where Marianne Cotillard has to go to each worker uh, at her work and tell them like not to like ask them essentially like not to get rid of her job. She has to go to each person and mm-hmm. it just follows her minute effort of going to each house and knocking on each door. And, you know, and there's, there was something about this where she has to uh, go up to all these different witnesses and hear this, these various stories that they tell and try and through all the different stories and maybe some of the lies that they're telling or things that they're, you know, sort of deliberately not sharing that um, she has to come up with the picture of what it was that happened to Japan in, 1944 uh, I think it is that they suggest that. well it's it's 45 because it was 45? like right because okay. the thing that is especially suspicious about the official story well it, it, it so at first he was reported as like you know killed in action and then later they changed it to you know just was deceased. deceased was just yeah. deceased what this very yeah. big was saying and it was especially suspicious because this was like it like he was deceased like the day after Japan surrendered. So it's like the timeline of when this happened is extremely weird. And as the film goes on, you get to see why that is. And sort of, again, sort of getting back to like the desperate situation, sort of the confusion that was happening in those last sort of little bits of the war. And, um, also the classism, the, the cruelty, the, 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 the I mean, the, I, 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 I find that, you know, what's, what's also interesting when she's going to see these different, um, you know, members of her husband's unit is that, you know, they're from very different walks of life. Like the first guy, he basically, like you see, you see him, uh, the first sort of shot of him is him feeding slop to pigs. And he's just like his whole, is he just lives in this absolute filthy farm. <laughs> um, and then, and then, you know, sort of uh, the, the higher up, you know, higher in the ranks you go, you know, these other guys, you know, they have very comfortable lives, but all of these men, one, yeah. One guy is like a literature teacher who has like, you know, yeah. like the, j- just the difference in vocabulary between oh. that character and the other character and the stories that he tells and how he can, you can tell he kind of feels some, some guilt over it. And he's thought about this idea and, you know, he even, he kind of agrees with her. He's like, you know, know people from the bottom of the heap never rest in peace and he tries to pitch mm-hmm. her on this idea of you know anyone who starved in the mountains should be someone who was considered like you know like it, everyone died because of the war when you think about it right um, like the the emperor caused these deaths and you know it's just very interesting watching like someone who has had the time to intellectualize his own war experience versus mm-hmm. this guy who lives in like the shanty town <laughs> right and right. you know he's like literally surrounded by garbage 
garbage and filth on every side and his his story that he tells and um story has to glory. do with yeah he's just story like you know I, he was a great guy and if he died 100 percent, i believe he died in glorious battle defending mm-hmm. japan and like that's just the only way that he has kind of come to terms with it he's like you know he, i'm i'm the one uh who deserted and his instincts would have had him dying nobly in battle and don't let anyone tell you differently about right. your husband which is obviously kind of what she wants to hear in that moment yeah um, and it's interesting yeah. that it's the first person she talks to after the, the, this, these years of getting nowhere and it's like a little bit of a, like a crumb of hope in a way um and mm-hmm. then it's it's pretty quickly taken away from her when one he the uh, i think it's terajima refuses to testify um because he's you know he's, he's more just comfortable in this new space that he's found this filthy farm yeah he's like i can't go mm-hmm. to tokyo i i love living in the garbage <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. he literally is like i just i can't you know i can't the the hustle and bustle of the modern world uh i can't deal with that it's too loud there's too much stuff going on uh the, my war experiences have me more comfortable living in the in the dirt essentially right. <laughs> well because the thing the thing that i will say very quickly is that despite all these you know you have this real wide range of different you know regions and classes in japan but none of these people are okay like yeah. all of these veterans are completely fucked up and there's, yeah, and there's totally uh, traumatized totally traumatized by their this experience and there's there's varying levels of how um, how open they are about it. And, and, yeah. and again, like, you know, the, the literature, the literature professor sort of being able to having the luxury to intellectualize and really sort of think about what happened versus other people who just had to get thrown back into their lives. Dude, the, 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 the guy who just becomes like, he drinks himself into early blindness. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's some of the darkest stuff. Yeah. yeah. Or even the, um, uh, the guy that's, he's got like a, comedy show where he almost mocks the time that he spent as a military man yeah he plays like a comedic caricature of a japanese holdout like making fun of the people who were like not in support of the war even though we are you know directly reckoning with the consequences of this war and how terrible it was and yeah watching him like put on the the makeup and put on a smile and you know uh and 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 tell the story of being like you know the, the whole thing was just such like a like the war was just like a ridiculous thing and there was no glory or charging into battles like the last guy lied to you there's no way like yeah, we were all sitting around eating starving. rats yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> not inglorious battle. we were all weak and tired there was no way any of us were charging um anywhere he's like the only story i remember about a sergeant and maybe the sergeant that she's looking for was a guy who was killed for stealing a potato <laughs> <laughs> right well yeah and that's the other thing that is so great about this film is that and i'm not gonna say rashomon because you know, just because it's a Japanese movie and there's different perspectives. You don't have to fucking say Rashomon, but like, <laughs> you know, she, 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 you know, she is sort of functioning as this detective. She's trying to figure out what happened. And, you know, there's so many different diversions and, and loops and gaps in memory or willful, you know, just flat out right. lying to her yeah. that it's really hard to, you know, you she has to navigate know. it. Yeah. Yeah. She has to navigate it. And you as an audience member have to navigate it too. And that, you know, I, I mean, I, I said this, you know, at, towards the beginning that it's, it's, a, you know, this is what happens in world, you know, like sort of world changing events like COVID and that, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure, or even something like living now, um, 
you know, thinking about how people talk about 9-11 or George W. Bush or any of the fucking ghouls who are associated with his administration, you know, the way in which history, it was like, well, we, we, we know what the history is. They were the, these were the facts and you were there. So how can you say this stuff? How can you revise it like this? Mm-hmm. You know? And I mean, obviously uh, I also thought of it, I thought of my own experience with that because you know, there's, there's a part where somebody says we had a war criminal as, as the head of parliament, you know, oh, right. because yeah. the Americans put him there and I'm just like, yeah, dude, like it, it, you don't, in, in the time it's happening, you're like, there's no way anybody yeah, the, could. The, that, that part is specifically interesting because they are saying that, you know, she, they're comparing it to her husband because they're saying like, look, you don't get military benefits and your husband doesn't get to be honored for his sacrifice because he t- like he he deserted and he was, mm-hmm. tech, you know, he he yeah. disobeyed the rules and the laws. Right. And they were like, yeah, but then we made a war criminal prime minister. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like the like the most powerful man is also someone, you know, who you could claim was guilty of, you know, similar things. But the and way they yeah, get so it's just away with it is just through like the the power of the bureaucracy where it's like, well, you know, um the the law here says that I am in line with it and even though it's a horrifying thing I did, you know, on this piece of paper, it says that I am innocent and I have done nothing mm-hmm. wrong and it's totally lawful. So, um yeah, they they definitely dive into that as well. Just that kind of like power dynamic of how these higher ups get away with it while these soldiers who are just trying to survive uh, starve or are killed because they stole a potato. Yeah, right. well, and my favorite aspect of all of this is because we'll, we'll get to it when we get to the end. But the, 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 she's navigating all these different stories and people are uh, at once like sometimes they're just misremembering things or mm-hmm. they're getting certain details right. But the broad strokes aren't quite right. Um, and or they're lying or, you know, she's so she's, she's trying to piece together this else. overall vision my favorite quality of this is that through all of the stories you do actually get a detail from each person that ends up being what the actual story was that happened yeah and each one of them just kind of had a bit of a different perspective on it and i love that the style replicates this kind of um fractured disorienting kind of editing style and shooting style that it does um Mm -hmm. that totally gets into people accessing old memories uh, that are traumatizing and i found that aspect really interesting because you know it does sudden camera moves or it does like shifts in lenses and colors like switching between black and white color as well um and also just like direct cross-cutting stuff like one of my favorite ones early on that kind of taught me how to watch the rest of the film was just her in the meeting with um the guys uh, at the department who are telling her, you know, here's the four names, like go and hunt them down. And, you know, she's breaking down in tears because she's like, I've been doing this for like 20 years and you guys keep changing jobs. And I keep having to tell the story over and over and over again Mm -hmm. to try and get this case, like any kind of progression in it. And it's switch. It cuts between her in that like mundane office building trying to, you know, prove her husband's innocence and then it cuts to the actual memories of her first striking romance with her husband and her memories of him and being in bed with him as he's being drafted and being like, I'm going to come back. And uh, the bit, too, where uh, it just cuts to her just screaming and crying hysterically on the beach mm-hmm. and like rubbing in the sand and everything like there's there's so much um, emotional 
uh, expression and sort of psychological fracturing that gets incorporated into this mission, even though like if you just laid out what it is that she's doing, like it, you know, there is a procedural quality to it. Like, you know, there is like this. She just goes to each person and she hears a story. But the filmmaking is so much more visually active than just saying that or just describing that. And it was cool to look it up because I immediately went, this is a really gorgeous film. It's shot by the same guy who shot Woman in the Dunes. I was oh, like, what? Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, that's a cool connection. Thank you, Violet. <laughs> the so, so like the, that, that psychological quality is absolutely still here. And he actually, I would say it gets more to play with because, you know, you get the archival footage as the characters right. are, you know, in this modern setting telling you, you know, trying to go back and literally go back into the stories that they are telling. And then the archival footage switches into you know, like these sweaty re- recreations of, you know, you're not sure what's memory and what's uh, fabrication or not, because it just is a recreation of each story that they're telling. And it's always the same actors too. like her husband actually is her husband actually kind of changes his own character in a way, sometimes depending on who's telling the story in really interesting yeah. ways. Yeah. One of my so, favorite parts that they do um, just on a, a technical level is like the switches between the modern uh, colored version and then the black and white. But when they are in the past and they have the black and white reenactments, when something like really visceral happens, specifically with um, like blood or something. Like that botched execution. Shoots, yeah, it just Oof. shoots into color as if it's like, it's it's such a it's such a harsh memory that they remember every little detail, including the color and, and all of that. It just like, well, yeah, it comes into back that. into their brains and yeah. they're forced to relive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also I also feel like it's something that, you know, that choice you could also read it as this violence endures, this violence is contemporary, this violence yeah. is what we live with. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, these are the, the the decisions that the photos turn into real life, right? Yes. And with the severity of the situation. Yeah, they become yeah. like a modern look in a way just because they're so viscerally remembered. Yeah, right. like 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 when he hits the back of his head with the katana to execute him and he misses his neck and it just shoots blood and it switches to color just in time for you to watch the red paint blood just fly out of the top of his head and him like screaming around screaming and running around and trying to avoid being executed like a chicken with his head cut off kind of situation Mm -hmm. and he keeps missing with the sword and they're like dude this is just miserable yeah, and yeah. and they're literally just executing like an American pilot who just like crash landed. And it's already right. implied that like the war is pretty much over. Right. Or it's like going yeah. to be over in like a day. And they're because like, yeah, we have to execute this American dude and we're going to execute him very poorly and miserably. Yeah, and botch it <laughs> completely. Because, yeah. because they want to get they want to carry on sort of the, you know, the 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 ego. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. This egotistical yep. thing where it's the like, power. well, I, I, you know, this is, you know, we are, we are Japanese. We're, you know, nation's pride, the nation's <laughs> pride. We, we are going to execute this American asshole with a katana, the, you know, the traditional, you know, that the idea that again, in a modern war, you would be carrying a fucking sword. Right. Insane. It's just absolutely insane. And yet he, there's, there's this, they, he again, you know, there, there's a reason they're hiding in the mountains. They know that they're fucked. They know that the war is going to be over any day, but they just, you know, certain certain members of the of the unit just don't want to let go because mm-hmm. they can't. Because again, it's like, well, who am I without these beliefs? Who am I without sort of this pride and this sense of purpose? And 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 then you see just sort of like this ghoulish and absurd 
what happens when someone follows, tries to follow through on that. And uh, it's just, yeah, like you said, just somebody running around with their just blood spurting out of their neck for no fucking reason. It's totally inhumane. Well, yeah, and, and all of the basic uh, just horrors of trying to survive wrapped up into that patriotism, right? Like, it becomes yeah. this thing of, like, you know, like these images of these characters in the mountains and, you know, the the actual archival photos of them suffering from malaria and starving also, to death and eventually getting, we'll get into it, but, like, eventually getting into metaphorical or maybe even real I don't know maybe maybe he did some research I don't know about but I also just thought it was a cool allegory even if it's not entirely true but like the cannibalism aspects of it as well oh that's um, real are very yeah. interesting it's real too wow that's fuck real. that's crazy yeah. <laughs> um, and also like when I think it's uh, his name's Gatto the, the lieutenant that does the botched uh, execution that's mm-hmm. eventually what causes him to kind of go a little bit crazy and start hoarding food and treating his soldiers worse. And it is a order that he gets from uh, Senda, who we eventually uh, talk to. Um, but, you know, it's just it's just that trickling down of power that eventually causes uh, complete like psychological devastation, basically, which mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. leads to the other soldiers that are below Gato to, you know, experience really traumatic things like starving, um, you know, being killed for really dumb reasons. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, yeah, it no, just your, constantly your, your, your continues. Point, yeah, no, your point is spot on, like this idea of it, like the, the movie directly angrily traces all of this to the emperor. The yes. opening yes. quote yes. of the film is, our nation's military has always served at the discretion of the emperor. And he does that to show you that all of these things that you are seeing on an individual level, on some level, we're sanctioned by the emperor. Yes. Right. Um, it just goes or, higher or and we're, higher Or up. we're done in his name. And yeah, and just as you get down and as you get down to the bottom, it just gets more and more horrifying. But it came from somewhere, right? Like this didn't yeah. just happen. These people didn't just be like, I'm going to abandon my wife and my soon, you know, my my unborn child you need because I really want to, to starve and murder people in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, you you right. need the permission to do that botched execution. You can't just do it. Some higher up has to give you permission to do it. And then it just, you know, the effects trickle down to to the soldiers. And um, yeah, yeah, it's inescapable, basically. Yeah, all of that stuff, I think, is really well threaded out um, throughout the film and through all the various stories that we hear, like the the comedy actor who starts giving them the bleak stories of, yeah, sorry, there was no noble battle. We were all starving <laughs> mm-hmm. and weak and, you know, uh, killing each other over stolen potatoes. And then the next guy, the blind, the guy who went uh, blind from alcoholism because he was drinking black market street alcohol to dull his own memories and also um, this sort of post-war harassment that he was um, experiencing as well. Right. And also whose like wife is cheating on him with a chef. There's so, there's a couple comedic yeah. details in there that are a little, or maybe not even comedic, but just kind of like silly details. Um, and, but, but this guy is like, yeah, maybe I would have just been better off if I faced a firing squad. Like, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> deal with any of this. And he's the one who the, gives the first story about, uh, where he's just like, yeah, I remember a guy who stole like a potato and then, uh, he ate his friend's butt and <laughs> yeah. you can see him like cooking it over like a fire and there's like ma- images of the, maggots uh, and salt and burned I flesh. Believe. Yeah. 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 It made it seem like it was a boar that he killed or something like that. Yeah. 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 So so over the course of this, we're going from nobly died in battle 
to um, maybe was starving to death and stole a potato and was executed to uh, maybe ate his friend's butt. Maybe, yeah, yeah, to maybe ate the, his friend's butt the, and tried to sell it. One of the greatest taboos of, across cultures imaginable cannibalism. Yes. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. I mean, because, and, and, and I mean, I think, you know, the, what also makes the film really, you know, special and mm. uh, I think unsparing, I would say, is that mm. I, I believe there's a, there's a scene where two characters are talking and they see these planes fly overhead and um, those are American airplanes getting to, you know, going to get refueled and they're going to Vietnam. And this is this film was made in 1971 uh, and that, you know, this there's something very the the the, you know, just how horrifying Vietnam was Vietnam was and just how wrong it was. And everyone knew that it was wrong, but it could not be stopped. Um, and that, you know, you see that little glimpse of like this war, the, the, the horrors of war are going on as this woman is trying to reconcile the horrors of a, of a past war that she's had to live with the repercussions with. It's like this, it's so it's, it's a nihilistic and it's just, it's such a profound anti-war statement. Like it's, I mean, it just is like, it really just gets under your skin and just, you know, any sort of romanticizing of, of war is this noble cause that gives people a, 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 you know, men a reason to fight and really straightens them out. It's just like, just dispenses with all of that in the most, uh, I don't know, butt eating way. Like, it's just, <laughs> very, it's very, it's, yeah, yeah, no, that, 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 that plane sequence, it was something I had in my notes too, because it's also very stylistically interesting because they see the planes flying over and they're headed towards Vietnam. And obviously all of this horror is just continuing on. And we didn't learn from any of these lessons, even though every person who experienced it on the ground, you know, if they were in a position of power or they, you know, they could tell you if they, if these guys just went to like a tribunal and said, here's all our stories, we should probably not do this again. People would right. probably be like, Oh yeah, probably not. Um, but it, it triggers these flashbacks too when he sees the planes where it actually takes him back to like old military parades and, you know, these just like images of Japanese nationalism, uh, images of May Day. They even throw in a little bit of Yukio Mishima in there as well. Mm -hmm. who makes an appearance in the imagery. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, he goes like, you know, is this what we, what we fought for, you know, like 26 years later and, really we're all just sad and traumatized and this woman is just you know on a persistent obsession to you know find out what it is that's happening the 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 deserter's wife can't even get welfare and the prime minister is a war criminal and that was that was the direct result of a bunch of men on the ground uh, you know cannibalizing themselves and each other and Um, also america literally and you know sort of more allegorically right (laughs) And I mean, and also, again, the victor, right? Then, you know, America sort of. Yes. And the role that America played in reforming Jap- Japan's government after the war and putting, again, yeah. war criminals in positions of power, uh, structuring things in a way that benefited America and American capital. And just um, th- that, you know, the victor writes history. And when the victor writes history, these sorts of stories don't get told. And, you mm-hmm. know, this sort of, um, again, and I mean, you could see this also in the way in which the Japanese government dealt with, uh, the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where they didn't want to, you know, sort of recognize them or give the, it's sort of pretend like this, 
didn't happen or sort of provide aid to them or people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people who suffered, you know, birth defects, et cetera. Fr- yeah, I was going to say, talk about times. lasting effects. Yeah, um, yes. Because, because, because the, I mean, and again, going back to Fukusaku, his uh, battles without honor humanity, that begins the, I believe the opening credits begin with a shot of the atomic bomb going off like this again it's sort of like this is this is this demarcation this is this part of uh history that we have that we exist after and that everything that you know we're dealing with is a direct result of this this horror that was inflicted again in the last days of the war really for you know, to, to make a statement about American power and not because yeah. the Japanese weren't going to. That surrender. is the most troubling detail about all of this is that it is how pointless all of it was. Yeah. Because because on on some yeah. level, another filmmaker you would think would be like, yeah, let's put them into these wartime situations where, you know, they're in the thick of it. They are battle. They, they are actually, as they see it, battling to achieve some sort of strategic victory. And in this, like none of these characters even believe that at that point in this. They're just right. like, no, no, no. This is like we know that this is all over and all of the actions that we're committing are, you know, like they're not going to matter politically in like two days. Right. But, you know, we're, we're still living in this like absolute hell and i do love that when we do find like about the the actual story that does take place over the course of over the you know that when she, when she finds out what really did happen to her husband which was that he essentially had a lieutenant this goto character who did this botched execution that really humiliated him in front of everyone and kind of drove him into an early madness it seems where mm-hmm. he was you know he was uh his superior as he saw it kind of punished him so he's going to punish his um underlings and his unit and you know he starts like working them to death he starts hoarding all of the food driving them insane and eventually getting to the point where again he feels so humiliated that he decides that he's going to like straight up attack them and um so the unit rises up and together they save the member of the unit who was the private terajima who's the first guy we saw and they all rise up and they they essentially kill him and they do this thing again too where they bring back everything with color the, the, the way that he shot it too with just like the the, the slow motion flailing of like <laughs> the mud and the blood all kind of like mixed, to, mixed together and everything like that and stuff yeah. is, is really interesting and there's a straight um, up arm sever in this like it, it gets yeah. pretty violent. Yeah. It, it, it flies <laughs> yeah. off. It's it's gory for yeah. sure. And and it's interesting watching the men get swept up into the hysteria of the violence, but actually probably doing the only piece of righteous violence we see in the thing, which right. is just yeah. defending right. another guy. Um, yep. And you know that is which what is Terajima, right? Which is why he thought of him as kind of a hero in his first story. Yeah, exactly. So so that's what's interesting is that Terajima, he's the one who blatantly lies in his story because he knows what it is that happened to them. And it wasn't that he died heroically in battle. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a really good point, which is sort of what I meant when I said that over the course of the stories, everyone kind of gets a little detail. Right. Yeah. That was yeah. his actual impression of him as a person because right. he did actually save his life in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like that that's really cool that he lies about him. But also when she goes back and, con- and finds it out and confronts him about his lie, he's just like, that is who your husband was, though, even if even if that didn't happen, which is why he said, don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise, too, which is what yeah. he says earlier, too. He's like that. That is who your husband was. He was someone who saw a weak person suffering who was going to be murdered 
And, you know, he stopped that from happening. And also, you know, he helped people like get out of the starvation camp that they were in as well. And, you know, like uh, everyone has a story about how he also he also stopped them from walking into a trap. He he disobeyed orders to, uh, you know, stop an entire unit from just, you know, getting killed. So, like, you know, he, he 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 by all intents and purposes, Japan should be like, this is our model war hero. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's something to say about, uh, like, even though he kind of lied about him being a hero or the way he was a hero, there's something definitive about the way he describes him, whereas every other person she talks to goes like, I think this might have been your husband, but I can't guarantee it. Whereas Terajima right. yeah. seems to have, like, th- he was a good person. That, that That is a definitive thing that I know about him, whereas everybody else is kind of questioning whether they really knew him or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it, it, I mean, I think that, you know, the now, obviously, we would say that, you know, these, some of the gaps in, in memory are, are a result of trauma or the, mm-hmm. the way in which certain people respond are like a part of a trauma response. But that, Absolutely. you know, that, uh, that this film and would come out in 1971 and really deal with um, those 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 issues, those long lasting yeah. effects that soldiers suffer from, I think is very, um, you know, re- it's revolutionary in a certain respect, because, again, this is mm-hmm. something that nobody wanted to nobody wanted to talk about. And I mean, my grandfather served in the Pacific theater. And I remember I asked him once, you know, well, what do you remember about the war? And he said, well, I wish I could forget. Yeah. You know, that, and again, this is like, this is the good side. You know, he was in the Philippines and Guam, again, places where the Jap- Japanese soldiers were starving to death, probably resorting to cannibalism. That, you know, um, that people who were there, you know, making this statement about how horrifying things were and how all encompassing the nature of war is and how that's just something that if you are a young person going to the cinema in 1971 or even us now, not experienced war firsthand. Uh, mm. We 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 just can't understand that, and and just trying to you know penetrate that, penetrate that, um, and make people understand. I think is a really excellent thing to do. And yeah. again, yeah, there's because- a, there, there's this um there's this illusion I feel like of order that yeah. the film tries to break down that it yeah. goes look yeah, we tell the we we have these memorials and we tell these stories and we do these things in order to you know cover up these things that actually happened and a lot of people you know at a certain point you start to just believe the stories and believe the lies and yeah this film very much takes it from the point of view of let's shatter that illusion front to back like quite literally like even when the um when they eventually do go to like senda who is the guy who was in charge of the overall unit was the guy who who uh, ordered the execution of her husband and claims that, you know, it was all done with proper procedure and, you know, there was court martial documentation. Yeah. As well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's the one who ordered Gatto to do his botched execution. And yeah, she, she suggests that, you know, the reason you just had them killed was because you didn't want anyone to know that you like drove Gatto (laughs) insane by having, having him do this ritual execution that he shouldn't have even been doing and humiliating him. And, you know, so like, well, I did it it by the law. Like I did it by the books you can't get me on this um mm-hmm. yeah and, and and again it was this misplaced patriotism that led to that happening right so mm-hmm. it, it's it's really interesting that you know like they he is directly psychologically diagnosing where this carnage came from 
Um, and these people are writing off the excuses of it through paperwork. And he said, yes. if it doesn't make sense, it's not that we did something hugely nonsensically disturbing. It's that there was a clerical error. You know? Like that's the <laughs> yeah. issue that's happening here. You know, and I, I love that conversation where he sits down and has with her and he talks about that. You know, you know, killing is okay when the entire country agrees to do it in the name of post-war recovery and prosperity. Um, but if you, if you know, if you have like a legitimate good reason, like you are protecting someone who is being, um, uh, you know, uh, unjustfully attacked, then, mm. you know, you deserve to be executed. Like that's essentially what the major <laughs> yeah. tells her when she goes to, um, goes to see him and actually talk about it. And also too, that this guy's not living with the consequences. Like he's living a life of leisure. He's hanging out with his granddaughter. He's writing a yeah. memoir about, yep. you know, his, his, his time in, uh, in the army and everything. So yeah, like the, to see that versus what it was that actually happened to her husband is, um, you know, it, it very much disturbs her and it disturbs, um, the, uh, uh, the sort of college professor who, who talks to him. And I, I think eventually they find out too, the blind guy was the one who performed the execution, right? He was the one who actually like on a pointed the gun at her husband's head and actually shot oh, him, which is a really yeah. brutal sequence actually where all three of them are uh, st being standing there or kneeling on the beach. And they mm. actually even ask, they were like, which way is Japan? Yeah. So yep. that we can like look at it and we can like scream at it as scream we're about to die. And, and the way that they all hold each other and say like, we're all friends who were drafted in school. We were all drafted together. We're all going to die together, which is such a powerful moment right before <sighs> their execution. And also when you start to include the autobiographical too. element of that, he was, you know, drafted with his fellow students and watched fellow students die. Like it, I think it's very powerfully um, expressing those feelings. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I also, I mean, thinking about this film today and how, you know, over the past year, year and a half that, you know, history, how history is taught in the U.S. is now this weird war. It's become part of the culture war. And there's all this legislation talking about how you can and cannot discuss certain aspects of American history. It's just like, I don't know. I feel like it's the this film really resonates with me now and again, wondering like, well, what, what other things are we going to lose? Because, mm -hmm. you know, what sort of mutual understanding are we going to lose because of stuff like idiotic shit like that? <laughs> because again, who are somebody, we going to eat is the real question. Or, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Cause it's really hard to understand like what happened and where we go. If, if the history itself is foggy and not yes. clear, um, and truthful. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's systemically made that way because to preserve to some hide, sort of ego yeah. or image or pride of some kind, which it's doing, which, which right. I just love that he, again, he shatters it, right? Like there's no ego or pride. Actually, I would say it's the pure depth of human carnage to get to the point where, um, the uh, Terajima, it, it turns out, was the guy who they were referring to in the story who becomes a cannibal. And they actually have to leave him behind because he can't walk even after they've saved him. But they promise, you know, they're going to go to the camp and they're going to bring someone to come back for him. But he can't survive long enough because he's so weak because he's starving. Mm -hmm. He can't even walk anymore. And um, yeah, he sits there so long that he looks at the corpse of Gatto and 
he decides that he's going to eat them. So he cooks them up and, you know, he puts them on the bonfire just to survive. And he gets that great line of the film where he's like, I ate a man, but the world didn't change. That's right. That's right. And like that is the movie kind of summed up in that moment. Like this just pure carnage uh, sort of experience of you reckoning with, you know, the things that you've seen and the things that you've done. And, you know, it, it doesn't, you feel like that should spin the world on its axis a little bit, that that should do something, but it's actually just the way that everything's run. People just choose to, uh, you know, leave that out when they write the history books. Yeah. There's um, like, there's there's a real sadness, even just with, uh, Saki, like, um, learning all of this, like the history has become clear to her, but she's not really left Mm -hmm. in a place that seems like satisfying or anything. It's just like now Mm -hmm. she just understands further that the, that the powers are, um, you know, taking advantage of, of these lower class people. And, and I think what she says, something like, uh, like the emperor started the war without asking the permission of the people and they were left paying for it. So, you know, she under, she has an understanding now, uh, uh, but, but it's not going to leave her with any happiness or, or, um, anything like that. It, it, it just, if anything, it's probably going to lead her to be more cynical about the country that she lives in, which is a shame. I mean, it's nice that she, you know, uh, uncovers the truth about her husband. That must be, you know, great, but I can't imagine what she views her country at this point now. Well, no, I mean, and, well, and, and, and even Terajima too, right? Like he says that he comes back. He's the one who came back. He's the one who survived. Yeah. He's the one who tells the story about like, you know, technically he's the one who ratted them all out, even though when he confessed, he says that, look, they killed their superior, but they did it, you know, because he had gone crazy and he was going to kill us. And like, it was right, totally yeah. self-defense. And, and they say, it doesn't matter. They killed their superior. The war is over. Uh, they mm. disobeyed the rules. They're going to be executed. And, you know, and, you know, he has to live with the guilt of having, technically been the one who gave them the information to do that even though again they were all being kind of like tortured and everything as as well but when he comes back and he is like i'm the only one who made it back and tokyo was like this vast burned out wasteland to me now like Mm -hmm. i ate a man you know like i can't i can't just go back to like living in an apartment and trying to like hold a normal job or you know he's like you know people were living amongst ruins um and they they didn't see it Uh, is how he kind of feels about it. Like to him, he had seen, you know, things had been exposed that and let out of the box that he couldn't put back in. And he's more um, comfortable with his filthy pig farm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's better than where he used to go, where he used to live. Right. Yeah. No, there's something, there's something uh, honest about it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and then and then when they go back to confront the the uh, the blind MP who's the one who shot her husband, uh, he got drunk and got hit by a truck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's yeah. like and, a sadness and, 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 to the way the wife is reacting too. She doesn't seem too distressed about the whole thing. No. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like a, a lot of of lonely men that were forgotten by their country. Seems. Yeah. And just pointlessly yeah. suffered and killed. And uh, yeah, and it, it's all summed up in that image of, I think, those three guys like screaming in the general direction of, of Japan the as they're yeah. being shot in the back of the head while blindfolded and like pissing themselves too. like there's so there's a lot of gruesome detail to this whole film overall. Yeah, but they even do like yeah. a squib with the blindfold and everything like it's very, yeah. very uh, blunt. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and there's to tie that like horrible detail of you know these people being executed, you seeing it graphically, them being you know totally not deserving of it, and you know uh, covered in their own filth and coming back and drinking themselves to death or putting on a show where you know they're having to tell these stories and lies even though they don't even believe them themselves or literally living in garbage and filth and cross cutting that with sort of or or um comparing that to the final image of looking out over the modern Tokyo and cutting between kind of like the, the, the honor monuments and the uh, archive essentially like snuff photographs of all of these dead people. And, you know, just combining those two things directly together with the audience of like, this is not the way we talk about this. And it's a big angry, like, why isn't it the way we talk about this? Yeah. Like how, how, how can all of this details out there, all of these memories are out there all of these people experience these things. How does it, when it gets to the top and it gets taught, how is it not, how is the stuff not included in it? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And yeah. yeah, I think that that is like really intriguing. And if maybe pivoting towards reductive braiding round, this was actually a high four for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I oh, thought yeah. the mm-hmm. Fukusaku did a really great job um, directing this. And I, I love how it started off as what I thought was kind of like Kafka-esque bureaucratic sort of hell of just trying to like get military benefits that eventually transitions into, you know, this series of fractured, heat-stroked, like traumatic war memories of a generation of Japanese men who, uh, and Japanese men who in post-war defeat and the fall of sort of Japanese national pride or or the attempt to maintain it despite the defeat um resorting to just you know really brutal and disturbing um acts of acts of violence and and cannibalism and you know just sitting in the hysteria in the literal filth and garbage ruins of this you know of this wasteland and how anyone could see it as anything else kind of blowing him away and yeah i think it's really really, really effectively stylized and very righteously angry um, in the way that it's been done. And um, Philippe Furtado on Letterboxd had a great uh, sort of brief review where he said that he described it as an an epitaph for the lies that post-war Japan told itself to keep going. And Mm. I think that that's really good summation of what it is that he's doing with the disorienting style of it and the use of the shifting lenses and colors and modern day versus sort of like the photographs and archival footage and memory recreations basically all just being blended into one. Um, and yeah, really disturbing, uh, film and, and, and tragic. But I think, uh, I think every point it's trying to make it totally, um, nails and you totally, um, feel it as well and yeah very few people are making war films with the level of uh you know uh political and philosophical thought uh that he has clearly uh put into the way that he structured this and and written this so uh yeah i can i can see why it was his passion project as someone who saw who was drafted firsthand and saw his own friends die for no reason so everyone should be checking it out under the flag of the rising sun yeah. Yeah. It's great. I am also going to give it a, a strong four. I think it's, I just, I, I like how uh, like tight this movie is. It's a good 90, 95 minutes and it's just hyper focused on each story that she's being told by each individual military man. And I, um, I, I just really sunk into it. I really l- enjoyed uh, her discovery and um, it is a very sad movie. So warning mm-hmm. there, there's not much, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of, uh, hope by, by the end of it. Um, it's just lies to keep, you know, 
keep no clean on. resolution to this uh, story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, but but um, really well directed, and I do like that her uh, her journey kind of evolves. Like you said, it starts with her just trying to get the sanctions for her family, and then it's kind of a discovery of what happened to her husband, and then it's a discovery of just what her country treats these people that are fighting for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's a really, really powerful film. And, and I, I definitely got to check out the, the Yakuza series that he has. Cause I think I'll, I'll love that too. So yeah, a strong mm-hmm. four for me. Well, again, because I picked it, I'm going to give it a five. Hell uh, yeah. if nothing Hell else, yeah. if nothing else, because, uh, you know, obviously it's, 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 Hard. It's hard to rank. This is why I don't yeah. like uh, giving. This is why I don't like assigning numbers to movies. But I will <laughs> yeah. say, I will say. I mean, I I love it in the sense that this is you know uh, one of the rare, you know, like a female driven detective movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's one aspect of it, and it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that's what it is, but that is what it is, and you see a woman who again is you know you there's sort of like this idea of what you know the quote-unquote eastern woman is like right where you know it's very resigned very 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 polite very you know just supporting a husband and this this you know this widow is so active and Mm -hmm. and unrelenting and driven and you know she's 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 passionate she's and she won't she's not you know and she I don't know. I, I like the fact that she's such an active character and not just somebody yeah. sort of just taking things and that, you know, she's been, she's not just fighting throughout this film, but that she's been fighting for like 26 years to write mm-hmm. this wrong and to understand what is going on. And obviously, you know, all of the, you know, the connection with Vietnam, the connection to, uh, the present day, uh, the connection to, you know, just how, and, and how, um, and how people talk about history and who gets to sort of decide what, what history is told and what history is not, I think mm-hmm. is really great. And then also I think, again, as an American viewer, uh, Western viewers, I think will also agree that there are certain ideas we have about World War II, the Pacific theater specifically, and that this really shatters those ideas and, and broadens your horizons and sort of allows you to understand um, get get a deeper understanding of what that was because I think far too often, um, especially, you know, the, in the West people just think about Germany uh, mm-hmm. and sort of like the European theater and they, and there's, there's a, there's a inability to sort of comprehend the level of, you know, suffering by civilians, by mm-hmm. the soldiers. And again, like, uh, you know, I, I think the film does a really good job of this showing that, you know, there are people who are totally on board and, psychos and there are people who are not <laughs> right. on board and they're just sort of got swept up into it. And I think that is a really important, um, you know, uh, something really important to depict. And of course, finally, finally, you know, it's just, it's so, I think it's the, it's, so, it's told in such a dynamic way. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the, the way in which it you know shows violence. It's not, it is in no way romanticizing violence whatsoever. No, the violence no. is horrific. The way it sort of, the film kind of breaks its own rules to depict violence, you know, going from black and white or sort of drained color to color and, and the freeze frames and, 
Yeah, I think it's yeah, uh, the, freeze yeah, the freeze frames. frames. I forgot to mention. I was going to mention, mention but they're those. sick. Yeah, yeah, the way that they use those is awesome. Just because they'll, you know, they'll be telling the story, and then if uh, the the storyteller requires to give you like more context or introduce a character, they'll do the freeze frame, give a little paragraph, and then it continues on with the scene. It's it's very mm -hmm. cool. It uses a lot of interesting techniques that all work together pretty well. Yeah. And, or even just like the use of text, I think too. Mm -hmm. And, and, and these, you know, photographs like historical and, numbers and facts and stuff too. Yeah. 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 And I think again, yeah, 3.1 million dead, it brings up at the very end, which is definitely crazy. something that it's like, you know, yeah. if, if, if this was the story of a unit of five people, imagine what had to have been done for 3.1 million. To yeah, have, exactly. Know, exactly. And it even, I think tally, it right? accents, uh, it's like 900,000 civilians as well. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, he really focuses on, you know, the people and what they went through. Exactly. For Not sure. just, uh, good old emperor but <laughs> yeah. anyway yes it's a good as you know as i said before a good good uh, double feature with the emperor's naked army marches on uh which again is yeah, just another kind out. of oh it's a it's an incredible documentary all of his um oh god i'm now i can't remember the guys yeah directed by kazuo hara okay yeah and i would just say all of kazuo hara's um Films are great, but that was the first one I saw. And um, he's, he's just a, he's a documentarian who is just like so unrelenting and kind of amazing and sort of shatters the idea of sort of uh, and really goes after these societal things that are taboo or just sort of pushed under the surface, not just not just in Japan, but kind of the world over. And I think, um, yeah, valuable, valuable filmmaking for sure. Cool. Not, that, not that it has to be valuable, but you know what I mean. It's they, they, they look they look great too. They're really they're really uncompromising, they're uncompromising artwork. So yeah, I'll watch this yeah, one for he, sure. He seems interesting. Yeah, I, I have I have this one already watch listed, but he looks like he has another movie here called Extreme Private Eros Love Song, nineteen seventy four. That one is fucking crazy too. That one's fucking is it? crazy. What, what, what's that one about? Uh, well, it's about. <laughs> It's about, so I forget if it's his ex-wife or if his ex-girlfriend, but basically she runs away and has uh, an affair with, um, I believe it's like a, a black uh, American private uh, and um, who's stationed in Okinawa, I believe. And uh, they, it shows her giving birth and then it shows him with his new, like the filmmaker's new uh, uh wife who's who has i guess cerebral palsy and it also shows her giving birth to their child like it's all like it's 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 um and i think also god it's been a while but i also believe that the filmmaker's ex-wife in the film has a relationship with a woman as well like it's like a very much like and, messy. and this is about his wife yeah so it's his wife and his ex-wife that's crazy yeah, <laughs> so it's like really, and again, so extreme private arrows. Yes, that title is accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, again, I feel I feel bad if I've I've misconstrued uh, the exact drama, but those those are definitely the elements that I remember, and it and it's again, it's um, you you don't get one but two live births in that, so check it out. <laughs> Will do. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to. Uh, wrap it up for uh <laughs> this week that was woman in the dunes from 1964 and under the flag of the rising sun from 1972 thanks so much uh violet for for coming on and for bringing these um films with you if you've yeah. got anything uh on the way to plug while you're here any new writing or any new 
podcast projects, possibly. <laughs> yeah, I might have uh, a this new is the podcast. Where we usually have you drop them. I might have a new podcast thing coming out with Adam Naiman very, very soon, very soon. Um, and let's just say it's about a filmmaker who is interested in uh, science <laughs> and. Okay. Bodies. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. There's. A, there's a word sex. you could use that would make it extremely opposite. Yes. Ob- obvious. So avoid. Yeah. I'm not gonna. Um. Yeah. I'm not gonna say that. But uh, it's a. It's it's a. It's not. A, I'm gonna say it's not about a director who's obscure, but it's just sort of like one of those filmmakers when they have a new movie, you say. Oh, daddy's home. So <laughs> yeah. Anyone Get who ready. listens to the show would be very interested in the show that Adam and Violet are, are working on for yes, sure. Definitely. Both have come on the show and both are just genuinely two of the best film writers out there they're the only two who i pretty much read everything that comes out from both of them so and adam is going to get a big name drop on uh next week's episode as well speaking of which because for the bonus episode listeners next week we are going to be uh in relation to a uh new film coming out from david cronenberg we're going to be finally talking about his uh 1996 film crash and when we were being like it's we were like, it's time to do that, obviously. And we were thinking about pairings and we had a couple in mind and we eventually went, well, let's just talk another insanely explicit NC-17 <laughs> controversial, quote unquote, erotic film, uh, Showgirls from yes. 1995, directed by Paul Verhoeven. So we're doing a big episode next week over on the Patreon for those listeners. And Adam obviously wrote the book um, Showgirls. It doesn't suck. So yes. we referenced it a couple times <laughs> um, the good fight. On, on the episode. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, look forward to Violet and Adam's upcoming show. I'll definitely be listening. And next week's episode, uh, Crash and Showgirls. And then the week after, uh, we have a special guest coming on for your guys' main feed episode where we are going to be, uh, I think, talking about some sort of like political resistance films. I haven't seen either one, so I'm not entirely sure what the double is, but we're talking about The Whistleblower as well as The Mighty Quinn, which I think has Denzel in it, but I, I haven't seen awesome. it. So either way, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued, and that's what we're going to be doing in two weeks' time. Uh, but that being said, that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Bye. Bye-bye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>